Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of History, Books, and Wine. I'm your host this week, Madeline Martin. I am a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. Today, I will be talking about hats. The wine that I am drinking today is called Art of the Cooper, and it is a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I couldn't actually find a website. I did try to go and find one I couldn't, um, so I'm just going to be reading from the back of the bottle. And it says, The mark of a cooper is his insignia, a symbol of pride and passion for the long-lost art of cooperage. A cooper is a skilled barrel maker that sets the stage for the most artfully crafted wine. From choosing the wood from which to hand-carve staves, to hooping and toasting the inside of the barrel, this is an art form passed down through the generations. And this, I will go on ahead and explain what it tastes like since... It doesn't have that on the bottle. It is a nice velvety smooth red wine with notes of berry and vanilla, I think. I don't have the most refined palate. It tastes good. (laughs) I enjoy it though. It is very, very good. So today I will be discussing hats. Usually Eliza does go right after we have our happy hour. However, this week that the recording is happening on, she is actually doing a wonderful trip in Europe with her family. So if you are following Eliza Knight on her social media accounts, you'll see some really incredible pictures of England and Scotland. They're all over the place and it looks like an incredible vacation. We've all been living vicariously through her wonderful pictures. So the first hat in existence appears to be 27 to 30,000 years old, and it is, it's not an actual hat. It's a hat that's carved into a wooden figure, and it's the Venus of Willendorf, or it's probably Willendorf, but she appears to be wearing what is a straw hat, to give kind of an idea that they probably did wear hats all the way back then. And in all honesty, they probably have worn hats for quite a while just because of needing to have a reprieve from the exposure of the sun, or even just just to keep them warm in the winter time. There was a man frozen that was found a while back and he was dated all the way back to 3250 BC and he was wearing a fur cap that was stitched together and that was tied under his chin. There were a few instances of this, not just with the frozen man, but they also had some of the bog people, if any of you guys know about the bog people. They were people who fell into or were placed into the bogs in the United Kingdom and the bog acted as a preservative and preserved these people so well that when they've been found, even though they're hundreds of years old, people have actually thought that they were fresh corpses. I saw a couple of them when I went to a museum one time, and you can still see this guy was like 500 years old, and you could still see his whiskers on his jaw. I mean, it was really incredible how well the bog preserved them, and a lot of these people were found wearing hats as well, and uh, it's interesting because a lot of them did tie underneath the chin, so they didn't have the same ability to fit them on their heads, sort of how we have now today, but they were held on by a little leather strap that went underneath the chin. 
And in Egypt, going back and looking at old papyrus, there are many instances of them wearing hats. Typically, they look like an inverted vase that's worn on top of their head. And most likely, it was for them to keep cool, but also probably for status and also for ceremonies as well. One of the interesting hats that I found while I was doing research was called a Phrygian hat or a Liberty cap. This was a conical cap with a tip sort of bent over. So the best thing I can think of to describe it is kind of like the seven dwarves. You know how they had the tip of the hat bent over? So it's kind of like that. And this became a symbol of the free man as in the late Republic of Rome, when people were given their freedom, they were given one of these hats and that's what they wore. It sort of became a symbol of freedom. It was brought back time and again. One of those times was in the 17th century during the Brittany's stamp paper anti-nobility revolt. People were wearing those. They were in red and they were in blue and that was sort of showing their support against the nobles. The hats that they were wearing were referred to as bonnet rouge and I don't know why they didn't say bonnet bleu because they had blue also. And again we see these hats coming back in the 18th century during the French Revolution during the Reign of Terror. So it came back again and that's not the only time you see it in history. It pops up yet again during the American Revolutionary War. Yep, so it came back even then. So this symbol of freedom went all the way from Rome and stretched all the way through America. So that's pretty interesting that a hat could have that kind of an impact on so many different cultures. Now we're going to talk about some hats that were worn in the Middle Ages. They had what was called the cocked cap. And if you think about what a cocked cap looked like, you can describe it as like a Robin Hood hat. The one that has the little point in the front and you can either tilt the point up or you can leave it down. You can tilt it dashingly over one eye or you can tilt it back for a little bit of a devilish look maybe. I don't know. This hat was worn by both men and women alike and was generally made of something that was sort of like a felt or something along those lines that was going to be a little bit more of a stiff material for them to make it out of. When it came to decorating it, they usually would put feathers in, but women would sometimes also have things like ribbons and little veils and everything else, but again, very much with all of the feathers. These hats were also typically worn for riding and hunting, so very jaunty hats, I do believe. Another hat that was worn during the Middle Ages were straw hats. Although these were generally more utilitarian, these were worn by men and by women, and they were often worn by people who were of the field and the merchant class. So you weren't going to have nobility wearing these. The straw hats definitely were more for people who were working in the field or who were going to have long exposure in the sun to prevent them from sunburn and from getting excessively hot. One hat that everybody is probably familiar with for the Middle Ages is the Henin. Now the Henin had several different stages and these were hats that were for women. Basically it was one that went on top of the head that covered the hair and it was sort of conical in shape and it was tilted back at about 45 degrees. If you think about the old princess stories and she had like the cone hat with like the handkerchief kind of coming out of it, that's what this is. Although this is the the original Henin was much smaller where it didn't have the point, it was sort of blunted at the top and it had a veil that went over the top of the entire Henin and it would come to rest just about right on her eyebrows. It was the thing for everyone to wear. Additionally, it was something that only wealthy women could wear. So this was definitely something that women wore to show off their status. If a woman made anything less than 10 pounds per year, she was not allowed to wear this. So it was definitely something that was worn for a status symbol. 
The Hennens later progressed to the Steeple Hennens, and this is exactly what I was talking about in the beginning, where if you think about one of the princesses that was in, you know, one of the coloring books when we were kids, she had the little pointy steeple hat. That's what this was. This was the Steeple Hennen. The interesting thing about the Steeple Hennen, too, is that it was actually pretty rare in England. However, it was quite popular in Italy and France, and boy, did they take it to extreme. There were instances where these hats became so high, they were reported to be 45 inches tall, which is over three and a half feet. I can't even imagine, especially when those women were, they, I think the average height for a woman in the medieval days was about 5'2". So if you have a woman who's 5'2", and she's got over three and a half feet of hat on her head, that's pretty it's crazy. Like it, I, I can't even imagine how they would walk into a room and not get caught by their head. Now, I will say that with these steeple hennins, they were pretty delicate. They were generally made out of either silk or tissue, and they had a kerchief that would hang from the back. And sometimes these kerchiefs, of course, that could be done in excess, and they could be so long that they would actually touch the ground. So as these women were walking by with their three and a half foot steeple hennins, they could have their kerchief sweeping on the ground behind them. So because these steeple hennins were incredibly fragile, you had to be careful when you went underneath an awning or underneath a doorway because if it was too low, you could crinkle your steeple hennin and that would just be embarrassing. Next came the butterfly hennin. And this was a double-coned hennin. <laughs> this is so funny. So it was a much sturdier hat. And so because it was sturdier, you could add all sorts of wonderful things like little pieces of gold and you could add different sorts of gemstones to it. You could put more feathers you could do all different kinds of things. In fact, one of the crazy things that they did with this hat is they attached these little, they were little wires, if you would think about them being sort of like butterfly antenna, and they would attach the veil to these little antennas so that they could make them be in all these crazy different shapes. But the butterfly henin had two bumps instead of one. That's what kind of gave it that butterfly shape. And then of course with the little butterfly antenna, I mean the sky was the limit with what you could do with fashion. I don't know how it would look, but you had a lot of options. <laughs> One of the interesting things about the butterfly hennin is that because it was a sturdier hat and because it was heavier when it did have the gemstones and any gold attached to it as well, it had to be secured on the head with a little bit more than just pins um, or with even just being tied on. And so they had attachments that went underneath the ears and held the hat onto the head by the underside of the ears. And that just sounds really, really interesting to me. I don't know how comfortable that would be throughout the day. And you would have to wonder what it must look like too for everybody to have these. They were they said they were invisible, but I sincerely doubt they had like fishing wire back then. But the women weren't the only ones that had their funky hats. Men had them too. In the mid-14th century, men wore either hoods or what was referred to as a leery pipe. And a leery pipe was basically a hood with a very, very long point that would droop all the way down. And of course, these could again be done in excess where they could drape all the way down to the floor. Men could do all sorts of wonderful things with their leery pipe in public. They could wrap it several times around their head like a turban or they could just do it once and shorten the hanging part of their leery pipe or they could throw it over their shoulder. You know, it just kind of reminds me of that song, you know. Does your leery pipe hang low? Does it wobble to and fro? Can you tighten a knot? Can you tighten a bow? So, yeah. 
guys probably didn't need that, but hey. So another interesting thing about the Leary pipe is that they couldn't doff their cap with the Leary pipe like they could if they were actually wearing a physical hat. So instead of when they were wearing a Leary pipe or whenever they were wearing a hood, the Vatican had a way of them remaining respectful even while maintaining their good sense or questionable sense, however you look at it, of fashion. So what they would do is they would use two fingers to slightly raise the hood while they were bowing. And this was referred to as Reverenza di Cappuccino. I probably should look that up because that literally is cappuccino. Um, <laughs> so I'm not really sure what that has to do with the hat, but it sounds interesting. In the 16th century, men's hats were almost sort of like berets. So if you think about, there's there are several pictures of Henry VIII and he's wearing a hat and it looks almost like a very fancy beret or almost like a, like a velvet cushion that's been placed on top of his head and covered with fur. And that was referred to as a bonnet and, or maybe bonnet, I'm not really sure, but it's B-O-N-E-T-E-S. And they were typically like little berets and they had six or eight sides that were stiffened. Then they were lined with fur. These also were called beavers for slaying because of the lining of fur. Over time, these berets became bigger and fancier with ornate feathers. If you think something along the lines of like the three musketeers, that's what they turned into. So they had these wisping plumes of feathers and they had embroidery and, you know, they were much bigger and fancier. And eventually, hats gave way to wigs, which were still worn even with the tricorn hats. But for a while, wigs were worn for the most part in place of hats. And then further still, we had what was referred to as fontange or frilange, which was a headdress and that was from the 17th century. It was actually named after King Louis XIV's mistress, Marquis de Frontage. There was a rumor that they were out hunting and something happened and she lost her hat or something happened and her hair got stuck in a tree. I kind of like the latter because it's kind of funny to think about. At any rate, what was a lady to do with her hair unbound and falling around her shoulders? One of the rumors is that she took a ribbon and she bound it in her hair to put her hair up. Another one was that she took one of her lace garters, which I think is significantly more scandalous. I'm going with that one. She took one of her lace garters and she secured her hair up with it. And the king was so pleased by it that all the ladies of the court started to do their hair like that. Basically what happened is there was a framework of underwire that was called the commode. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's how I want to pronounce it. So from the commode, the hair would be styled and then they would take layers of ribbon and different kinds of lace and everything and they would put it up in their hair. So it almost looked like if you would imagine a French maid's hat, but really, really, really tall. So maybe like a foot tall, just a lot of lace. And later on, further still, we eventually get the top hat. And there's a funny story about the top hat, as it seems like there are so many funny stories with all of these hats. <laughs> so there was a man named John Hetherington, and he caused quite the scandal while he was on the street wearing his brand new top hat, which nobody had ever seen. And it was so tall, and it was so shiny, that apparently people started to panic in terror. I don't know who gets this freaked out over a hat, but apparently he caused such a ruckus that he was actually taken to court and fined 500 pounds for wearing this shiny top hat, which I think is, it was something along the lines of like disturbing the peace or something, but it was purported that dogs were barking, children were crying, women were screaming, and all I can think is, but it was a hat. <laughs> 
So apparently it was quite the hat. Initially it was made out of a lush beaver fur. Later on it became more of a silk plush and now today you can find it in wool, silk, even leather. So top hats all over the place. But top hats were not always so scary and eventually they rose in popularity so much so to the point that taxis and cabs were designed to be much taller than they needed to be specifically so that men could get into the taxi or the cab and not have to take off their top hat. So apparently people got over their fear, which is good because there are way better things to be afraid of than hats. Now when it comes to hat making, there were a certain kind of people who made specifically women's hats and they were actually women themselves. They were referred to as milliners and they were around around the 18th century. They were originated from Milan, hence milliner. But these women made hats for women and so they obviously knew what women liked. They would have all the trappings, all the different feathers and the ribbons and lace and all of that. But they also would select accessories to go with it. So you would almost kind of, it sounds like build your outfit around your hat, which I think sounds fabulous to be honest with you. I have always wanted to go to the Kentucky Derby and wear one of those super fancy hats. And I can just imagine how much fun it would be like, I want this insane hat and I want a whole outfit built around it. And the milliner was your girl. She would go and get all that stuff put together and make you look like a million bucks. In addition to the milliner, there was a plumassier, which basically is where the feathers came from for these hats. The feathers were dyed and arranged into different boas and tufts and sprays, anything that you could possibly imagine. These plumassiers did. Hats that are adorned with well-worked feathers could actually go up to the cost of a hundred pounds. So this was no light work. These ladies definitely could make some good money and that was in the Edwardian time period. For a while there, whole birds apparently were stuffed and used on hats, but people started to complain about animal cruelty of it, and so that was put an end to. And additionally, people were complaining about birds who were more on the endangered side, and so those birds were also taken off of the table And when it comes to hatters, and also milliners counts in this as well, although I don't think they had quite the same exposure, but there was a certain saint that was there for hat makers, for felt hat makers specifically. And this was Saint Clement. He was the patron saint of felt hat makers. It's said that he was the one who discovered felt making in 800 AD after putting some flax fibers into his sandals to protect his feet. And after walking around for a considerable amount of time when he took off his shoes, lo and behold, the fibers had been felted. That is why he is the patron saint of felt hat makers. And if ever there was a profession in need of a patron saint, I really believe that it would be hat makers. If anybody has ever heard the phrase mad as a hatter, mercury was used in the creation of felt and it caused many hat makers to get very, very sick. How did they figure out that they needed mercury, you ask, to figure out the whole felting thing? Well, it was kind of a complicated process. And first it started with urine. Yes, urine. Apparently, it was discovered that anytime you would use urine in the felting process, it not only sped it along, but it also produced a higher quality of felt. I also don't really know who the first person was that was like, I think I'm going to pee on this and see how it works out. 
But anyways, in France, they use their own urine because why not? I mean, it's readily available and it would be disgusting to use somebody else's, right? Like, urine wouldn't be disgusting enough. They happen to notice that one particular person always had the most incredibly well-formed felt of all of them. So they couldn't figure out why his felt was so much better. You know, turns out he's peeing on it just like they are, except he has syphilis. This gets so crazy. So he has syphilis and he's being treated for his syphilis with mercury. And so because his mercury syphilis laden pee is doing a better job at felting than everybody else's pee, everybody decides to start using mercury. And oh, what a downward spiral we go on after that. So eventually a procedure came along known as carroting. And this was an orange solution with mercury that was washed over the pelts to help separate the skin from the fur. And it was sort of an orange in color. That's why it was called carroting. They would rub it over it with their hands. Of course, with no protection, they didn't exactly think think about putting on rubber gloves and eye masks and everything else back then, let alone making sure to aerate their rooms that they were working in. Now, you know, this mercury they were working, the process was a warm process. And so you have this warm, humid air that's circulating with all of this mercury while they're working. Mercury has some really nasty effects. It attacks the nervous system. And so breathing in mercury for a while can cause serious long-term exposure. So some of the problems that will be caused by mercury poison include, but are certainly not limited to, well, first of all, one of the things that would happen is that your hands would start to shake. And people looking back on old historical records from Hatter's establishments, they could see shaky hands all over the place. So the writing was no longer neat and fluid it was very very shaky and it's almost like you could see the onset of this mercury poisoning which is so incredibly sad so initially their hands would start to shake that was sort of the first symptom and then your eyes might start to twitch and your mouth might start to twitch and and everything would sort of kind of become a little bit twitchy there were problems with hair loss like i said muscle twitching drooling a lurching gait paranoia depression difficulty speaking and thinking a lot of times these people who were suffering from mercury poisoning were often confused as being drunkards because of the fact that their nervous system was so completely wrecked by all of this exposure to mercury. And it could even be so bad that these people could even start hallucinating. That's where the mad as a hatter comes from. Another interesting note to point here, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, yes, it was written around that time period. However, the mad hatter was not actually a parody of somebody who was suffering from mercury poisoning. Apparently, there was a local who sold furniture, and he was a bit eccentric. He liked to experiment with all kinds of little inventions and make wacky things, and he always wore a top hat. And so everybody called him the Mad Hatter, and it was more of a playful sort of a nickname just because he was silly and eccentric rather than a mockery of somebody who was suffering from something really, really horrible. So no hating on Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland because he was still in the right. So here are some fun little tidbits on hats before I start going into the books that I've read this week. The original dunce hat where it's the cone, it's, it's sort of like the steepled henin, except instead of being tilted back at 45 degree angle, it was put specifically on top of your head. So that actually was around in the 13th century and it has the, you know, the wider part is over your skull and the pointy top is the very top and the thought was it would help God funnel knowledge in through the point and into one's head. I don't know how well it worked. 
but it sounds interesting. In the 19th century, baseball umpires wore top hats to the game. So I think that's pretty debonair of them. And also with fedoras, they were originally women's hats, and later on they became men's hats. And one last one, chef hats should technically have 100 plates, and it's to represent the hundreds of ways that one can prepare an egg. I didn't know that there were hundreds of ways to prepare an egg unless you involve actually cooking it into things like different kinds of cakes that you can make. But as far as different ways of completely preparing an egg... I had no idea. So now I'm going to talk about what I've been reading this week. This is actually more than one week. I've gotten totally sucked into this. You guys know that I like to listen to Audible. And so I've discovered something that's called The Great Courses. And it's this whole, I know this might sound boring to some people, but I am a huge history nerd and it has me all kinds of excited. But basically these are professors who have been paid to put together lectures and give these lectures on Audible. And it's on Audible all different kinds of topics. It's everything from history to the power of thought to finances. I don't usually read all those, but I like the ones on history. (laughs) I listened to one on the Black Death, which was really, really well done. And I loved it so much that I also got one that's called The Medieval World. And the instructor for this one is Dorsey Armstrong. And she was the same professor who did the lectures on the Black Death. And she's so incredibly passionate about her work that it's just she makes it so much more fun it's already fun and she just makes it even better I have been listening to the great courses I kind of went on a shopping spree and I bought like six of them so after I'm done with this one I'll probably start pouring through all the other ones but they're really really good and they're interesting and it's like about 18 hours worth of the most fascinating information well I'm excited about it. I'm going to read you the blurb. This is The Great Courses. This is The Medieval World by Dorsey Armstrong. Far from the time of darkness, the Middle Ages was an essential period in the grand narrative of Western history. But what was it like to actually live in those extraordinary times? Now you can find out. These 36 lectures provide a different perspective on the society and culture of the Middle Ages, one that entrenches you in the daily human experience of living during this underappreciated era. Drawing on history, literature, the arts, technology, and science, these lectures will deepen the way you understand not only the Middle Ages, but also everything that came afterward, from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment to your own world. Filled with amazing insights, this series brings you closer than ever before to life as it was lived and felt. You'll meet the likes of William Caxton, England's first printer who not only printed and distributed a variety of works, but also often had to translate them himself. Learn about Hugh of Payne and the role of his Knights Templar organized for the protection of pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem and the creation of the first modern bank. See how communities dealt with marriage in a time when the church had not yet drawn this institution into its orbit and much, much more. Rich with information and period detail, including revealing examples of medieval literature from the English, French, Norse, Icelandic, and Italian worlds, these lectures will dramatically increase your understanding of how lives in the Middle Ages were actually lived. And it really does. It's so good. So I will definitely put that in the show notes. And even if you aren't interested in listening to the one on the medieval world, if you are a history lover, apparently from what I've read in the reviews, a lot of these professors are just really passionate about what they're talking about and they make it really really fun. So my book this week is I'm going to talk about actually my debut release. My first book came out 
about five years ago, and so I thought that I might kind of kick it old school and share about that one. So this was Deception of a Highlander, and this book is about to pay a seemingly impossible debt, Muriel Brandon has to become a spy for Aaron, one of England's deadliest minds. Aaron's latest mission for the sharp-witted and daring Muriel is to find two people in a heavily fortified castle on the Isle of Skye, a castle headed by the clan MacDonald and the powerful Kieran. Muriel is to seduce Kieran and get him to take her to Skye. If she succeeds, Aaron promises to let Muriel's young brother go and to free both from their debt. If she fails, her brother will die. What she doesn't count on is craving Kieran MacDonald almost immediately upon meeting him. Now Mariel must keep a secret from Kieran, one that could get them both killed, as she tries to form a plan that will save her brother, get out from under Aaron's thumb once and for all, and keep her and Kieran's strong arms forever. That's my debut book. That was Deception of a Highlander. And like I said, I published it about, well, five years ago. <laughs> now I have my reader question. And this comes from Carol in Detroit. Thank you so much. Carol is asking, where do you like to write? You know, it's actually, it's kind of funny. I don't really care much for writing. Like in Starbucks, I know a lot of people like to write there. But when I write, I kind of make funny facial expressions. Like I get really, really into the character characters when I write and I actually do this while I'm reading as well so apparently I'm just a very expressive reader and writer but if the character is angry my brows are furrowed if the character is sad I get like all choked up and I oftentimes start crying while I'm writing my sad scenes in my books and I like to mimic the actions of the characters so if somebody touches their finger to their chin in confusion sometimes I might also touch my finger to my chin not confusion but just I guess in uh, solidarity for me my favorite place to write is kind of boring It's pretty much just in my office. Although I do have to say I'm super excited to have an office because prior to about eight months ago when we moved into this house, I didn't have an office. In the old house that I used to live in, I pretty much was just set up in the middle of the living room. And it's kind of hard to concentrate, especially on deadline when everybody's moving around you. And so now I have my own office with a door and I have a place for all of my books. I haven't had a chance to organize everything just right yet. I'm kind of on some tight deadlines. But after November, when my deadlines are over, my plan is to completely overhaul this office and get it all nice and clean and organized. So on that note, my question for readers this week is where do you like to read? Is it on your back porch? Is it curled up in your favorite recliner? All kinds of wonderful places to read. And if you have a snuggly little fur baby that likes to curl up with you, feel free to let us know about that and we would love to see a picture. So you can send us your answer and any pictures to History Books and wine at gmail.com and feel free to ask us any questions that you have that you'd like for us to answer on air. You can check out our website at historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com to hear our podcasts and read through all of our show notes. We can also be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and on Alexa. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow us everywhere. If you have enjoyed this show, please feel free to leave a review. New episodes are posted every Thursday with the upcoming shows including July 18th with Laurieann Bailey who will be speaking about historical jewelry July 25th with Eliza Knight who will shore up our information on shoes and August 1st will be our next happy hour while we're chatting all things accessories like purses, fans, and much much more. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.